You're listening to the Corporate Quitter Podcast, where it's all about exploring possibilities for making an honest living outside of the traditional nine to five. and welcome to this episode of Corporate Quitter. I'm your host, Gabby Ainel, and today's guest I'm so freaking excited about because so many of you have been asking me about this specific topic, but his name is Jonathan Farber. He's achieved financial freedom at 27 and started his quote-unquote house hacking journey at the age of 21 by buying traditional rentals and short-term rentals with creative acquisition and financing strategies. At the age of 26, he left his corporate enterprise technology sales job and now focuses on traditional rentals, short-term rentals, Airbnb arbitrage, and wholesaling, as well as providing courses and a mastermind group for people looking to get started in real estate investing. He's also the host of the podcast Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate, which averages over 2,000 downloads per week and has been one of the fastest growing real estate shows with an aim at helping young real estate investors achieve financial freedom. You have done so much shit in a short amount of time. It's so cool that we are not actually too far away from each other. We grew up around the same neighborhood, which is crazy. But I just am so glad that we could connect over TikTok of all places, but that you're here to kind of share with my audience the things that most people are looking for, which is how to create financial freedom through real estate. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to be here and I can't believe we're both on Long Island. Like that to me is still so funny. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah, dude, small world. But I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. So can you get into your story? Like I know I obviously kind of glossed over it. I'm sure it's much more in depth than just like, yeah, I was at the job and then I wasn't. Like what was all the, this whole backstory, why this even started and how it even came to be? Totally. Yeah. So for me, I was starting with no base of entrepreneurship or real estate or I guess business in general. I'd always been kind of down the traditional path of go to school, get a job, work hard, work your way up. And then by the time you're 65, hopefully you have a pension, hopefully you have a social security payout, and then you can retire. That just wasn't that exciting to me. After a year or so in corporate, I came into corporate excited, but after a while, I'd say the luster kind of fell off. And I saw something that was a little disturbing to me that a mentor of mine, and you know, it's not a like a hidden expression, but it was, if you see the people 20 years ahead of you and you don't admire them, it might be time to make a change. And I saw all these people that were ahead of me, same exact path, same exact trajectory, making a lot of money, but they were not happy. They did not have good family lives. They weren't healthy. They were out of shape. They couldn't wait for the weekend. And that just didn't seem that great. So that kind of got me down the path of... How do you explore financial freedom? What are the tools? What's the education? What are the paths? The first book that really kind of opened my eyes to it, if anyone has read it, you know, and understands my story a little, it's following the similar, you know, path that the book talks about, which is Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, of trying to figure out how do you lower your cost to live and then how do you add income streams to then do whatever you want. And in the book, it talks very clearly about not trying to be retired sitting on a beach, but doing things that actually get you fired up and make you happy with cool people and you can design your life. That was something that really stood out to me from that book, lifestyle design, as opposed to just kind of going through the steps and the motions that I was on the path of. So for me, that started with real estate. I started getting educated on a tool called Bigger Pockets. It's a website, it's a blog, it's a podcast. It's very popular for beginner real estate investors. And what that media talks about is a lot of beginner ways to get started with very little money. And one of the strategies that they're very big on, there's books written, a lot of content on, is a strategy called house hacking, where you can buy a property that you're going to live in, you put very little money down, and you rent out the other rooms or units. And by doing that, you live for free. And now, for any of my finance nerds out there, if you look at the stats, 
housing and car are the two biggest expenses for most people. It makes up close to 60 or 70% for most people of like their financial spending every month. So very quickly, it occurred to me that if you could just knock out those expenses, you're already very close to financial freedom. Then you might just need a couple extra income streams and you're out of your job that you might not like. Another really big misconception that I wish I would have learned earlier, but I learned it at a time that it still impacted me a lot, was you're not looking to replace your salary with a side hustle. You're just, at the beginning, looking to replace your cost of living. If you're waiting to replace your salary, there's a good chance you'll never actually leave the job because in some cases, you know, and I think it was similar with you, but it definitely was for me. I was in the epitome of golden handcuffs. It was a very high paying job. So if I was waiting to eclipse my salary, I would have never left the job. So for me, I just needed to figure out how to cover my base. And then what's cool is you get all your time back so you can work on projects you like, things that you enjoy, and then you can focus on making more money. But for me, Long story short, kind of going through the progression, bought the first house. I learned about analyzing deals. I learned about picking markets. It wasn't as complicated. I was living down in Raleigh, North Carolina at the time. There's a lot of content out there. I put out a lot of content out there now and had all these areas and markets, but found a property, 3.5% down, rented it out to friends that I work with. I live for free. They paid my mortgage and you can do one of those a year. So I did one of those each year when I lived in Raleigh, three years. And the last time I was there, the last one I did, I bought a four unit, which you can also do a three and a half percent down, which is a huge hack. I mean, if people just did that their first couple of years out of college, their entire financial trajectory would be completely different. You don't even need to do anything else, just one property a year. That kind of got me down the path of additional income streams, adding more properties, real estate entrepreneurship. And then when COVID hit, I'm kind of compressing a couple of things here, but when COVID hit, I really saw that as the opportunity to compress five and 10-year goals into maybe whenever we had to go back into the office. For me, I was looking at it like I was doing this all on the side. I was using my job to get the loans and to have a good DTI that I wouldn't have if I didn't have the job. But when they were going to call me back in, I knew that was going to be when I was done with the job. I just didn't want to do it anymore. So for me, I just was really focused on strategies that I saw could make more cash flow in a shorter period of time, which were furnished rentals or Airbnbs, and then wholesaling, or it's another fancy word for flipping, but you're not actually flipping a house, you're just flipping a contract. It sounds more complicated than it is. That kind of brought me up to mid-COVID. And then I was really just focusing on systems, automating things, virtual assistants. That's a big part of what we do. I've just always been fascinated with virtual assistants. Again, back to 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. There's just so many use cases for it. And you can scale a business as a beginner when you're saving costs. So there's a lot of things, I guess, like bundled into this. But for me, that was just kind of the track. And then finally, there was a point where my job came to me and was wondering what I'd been doing. Because I used to play this game in the last two years that I was in my job that I only gave myself 10 hours to do my W-2 job. I had a separate computer that I would basically shut my work computer after 10 hours of corporate work. And then the rest of the week, I was just focused on my side hustle. I don't know if I always recommend that strategy, but for me, it kept the lights on at corporate. No one really noticed any difference because you can float for a long time in corporate America. It's incredible. But then I wanted to build this thing on the side. So for me, it was about kind of balancing my time. Some other great books on that that really helped me was Effective Executive by Peter Drucker and The One Thing by Gary Keller. Time management was really important. And that's what kind of like helped me organize my path out. A lot of different things there, but from a high level, that is kind of how I started. And then really what 
happened and transitioned during COVID, which, you know, is obviously not a good thing for a lot of people. But I think a lot of people use it as an opportunity. And a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, started businesses that are going to be very successful during COVID. Yeah. And it's so cool how what you're doing is basically like, when you look at it, it was a five years, six years, seven years, and now you've kind of made it. Whereas a lot of people are like, oh, I don't even want to get started because it's going to take too long. And you're like, really? Like six years out of like a 90 year life? Like, totally. <laughs> shut up. Like, just do the thing. Yeah. I think with that, there were a couple of things that I needed to see that gave me confidence. That's something that I see a lot of times that people lose motivation when they feel disconnected from their goals. And what helped me with that was looking at end goals, but then coming up with shorter term attainable targets. I looked at it like this. I was 21, 22. I wanted to be financially free by 30. And I know that's eight years. It happened sooner. But I was thinking if I just bought one property a year, you have 12 months to find one property every year. That's beyond doable you'll probably be financially free. Then obviously, depending on your ambition level, you can ramp it up. But, you know, everyone has a different ambition level. Everyone has a different amount of time and energy. You know, I think tailoring a plan for you. But yes, to your point, big picture, it's a long life. If you make small sacrifices on the front end, then you can have 50 years of awesomeness as opposed to 50 years of eh, and then maybe 10. And by that time, your legs don't even work. So it's like, (laughs) that's not great. That's funny, but I mean, it's true. I mean, it's a sad reality, right? Uh, Just like waiting until you're basically old to do the fun things and you can't even do them anymore. I want to go back to like, okay, when you were first starting, like, were you scared? Because right when, especially when like anyone, even my age, I'm 28, like when I think about purchasing a property or anything, like I'm always afraid because I'm so like non-committal, right? Renting, I can get in and out within a year. Like I love to move. I move jobs a lot. Like when you buy something, you're like committed to it. And it's like, seems super serious, right? Really adulty, right? Was there any fear about any of that? Like, did you have any hurdles that you had to overcome that were unexpected that made it maybe a headache in the beginning until you were a well-oiled machine? For sure. There's always a balance between getting educated and then analysis paralysis that I think everyone has a different tolerance to. For example, my brother, it took him five years of getting educated and getting nudged. And then he got in the game this year, he bought his first property, and now he's already on his path to, he's got a second property under contract. You know, some people talk about it like the rule of one, the law of one, that the first one is the hardest of anything. But once you get that, you get the confidence, you get the learning, you get the perception from other people that you can do it, which a lot of people need too. That's a big thing. You know, they need kind of that vote of confidence from other people. They have imposter syndrome. So what some people do, and I actually did this in my first deal, was I actually partnered with someone. It was a mistake, actually. We're still like best friends today. But what I realized was I needed a second person to call when I had questions about things. And I needed someone that could kind of just like be there to powwow when we had problems. That's not a good reason to partner with someone. I'm all for partnerships, but I think what is a more effective way is to partner with someone who brings something that's like a value exchange. Either you have the experience, they have the money, they have the deal, you have the management. You know, those sort of things where it's kind of cohesive as opposed to blind leading the blind. I don't like those partnerships at all. In that case, he had a better financial understanding. He was good at analyzing things and he kind of came from finance. So that was what I was leaning on him for because self-awareness. I realize I'm not really so great with numbers and analyzing. It's still a weak point for me today. Now I just realize, you know, I can get help instead of a partner, but at the time it was okay. So I would say, you know, there's a couple ways you can partner with someone, you can get a mentor, you can, you know, depending on how like risk averse you are, you can just take action and figure it out as you go. But I would say having an accountability partner, having a mentor or having a physical, you know, partner in a deal 
are good ways or investing in someone else's deal. There's a lot of opportunities in real estate where you can invest with someone else. You're not an equity partner always, but you can learn the ropes. And I've seen a lot of people start that way. They invest with other people's deals and then they're ready to go on their own after that because they have the confidence without the risk. They feel like they've done a deal without having the potential of a big mistake and then they can take action. But for me, I did partner with someone and what happens is, there's resentment that starts to build in a partnership. And, you know, I think the best communicators can voice that. If not, that's why people say don't partner with friends or family because, you know, things bubble up when things aren't communicated or there's bad expectations. So we basically just had a conversation. It was like, hey, we had a good run. We made money. I think we've each kind of focused on different things, but I think it's time that we kind of unwind this. And, that's when I just started doing more on my own and he went back to doing stuff on his own. And he's actually the person I'm going to visit in Austin today. He's literally my oh, that's best so funny. friend. So, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's funny how life works, but long answer to a short question, but ultimately there's a lot of ways, but you need to just figure out what you need to do to take action. If it's, you need moral support, if you need hands-on help, if you need coaching, if you need accountability, but just solve for whatever you need help with to get yourself going. And then from there, you'll get momentum. That's such a wise thing to say because, right, everyone thinks that you have to do it on your own. And what I'm finding more often is that you're better off either seeking out help to find, like, the right answer. And maybe in certain cases you do partner with someone. It's just so much easier to just pay someone to, like, teach you how to do it or be in the right space versus you fucking up and trying to do it on your own. I mean, you can, but, like, going into a mastermind or something and it's going to teach you, like, in your case, right, the real estate investing tips people need. Like, I'd rather fucking do that than try to, like, you know, read a book, which is great, but, like— Just just one comment on that. It's funny. You know, I used to make blanket statements of, like, this person's a doer versus this person is, like, you know, they need a coach. I found it personally, for me, some areas I'm just comfortable diving into and just starting. And then other areas I need handholding and I want a coach or I want a mentor, you know? So if it's like, for me, starting a podcast, I just jumped in. But now with YouTube, I wanted kind of coaching on it. I wanted help kind of getting started with it. I don't know why, for whatever reason, but I think it comes back to just solving for what you need and figuring out, do you have like on this thing enough kind of push to do it yourself or do you need something external to get it done? And that's totally okay. You know, LeBron James has a coach, you know, like Tiger Woods has a swing coach. Like that's okay. It's just, do you need it or not to get, you know, the result you want? And then that's only for you to decide. Yeah, I agree. It's time to pull the trigger sometimes, but it also depends on your risk appetite and just all that good stuff. But I want to kind of reel it back because, you know, we're talking about all these different things. But like when you talk about getting started with investing in general, people are like, oh, like that's so scary and overwhelming and I don't know what the fuck to do. So like, what do you need to really know when you get started with your first investment property? Like I know, right, 3.5% down, like, but what about credit cards, credit scores, loans, like all that good stuff? Mm -hmm. And um, Gabby, is most of your audience W-2, self-start, like, like I would say 50-50. Okay. If you have a job, the first thing to do is call a local bank and ask them if they can tell you based on, you know, just talking what type of loans you'd be able to qualify for. I'm not saying get a hard pull on your credit yet, even though it's not that big of a deal. But at this point, a lot of banks can tell you what you can qualify for based on how much you make and what you're paying in housing or car. And then from there, you have a number to start with on your investment journey. Because some people right now, what happens is they start out, they start going on Zillow, they start going on Redfin, and they're looking at properties that then maybe they do find one and they can't even get it because of the financing. So that's not good. The first step, if you have a job, is to start getting pre-approved or thinking about what you can get approved for and then go from there. 
If you don't have a job and you're trying to figure out how to get into the game, what I would recommend is taking the next 30 days to just study this topic, creative financing strategies or real estate entrepreneurship strategies. And I'm going to say the names of them. We could dig into some of them, but just if you spend time 30 minutes a day YouTubing, podcasting these strategies, you'll be able to have a better picture of which one you want to take action on at the end of 30 days. But that could be real estate wholesaling, doesn't require any money. Airbnb arbitrage doesn't require a lot of money at all. Or you could do co-hosting or managing for other people on Airbnb, requires no money. And then there's creative purchase strategies, things like subject to, lease to buy, or owner financing. On the creative purchase sides, if you do those things, then you don't need a loan or any bank involved. So those are like two buckets. And then I think about if you don't have a job and you're not going to be getting loans, you can either do the creative real estate entrepreneurship strategies or you can do creative financing to buy a property. You know, it all does start with education, but if you go down that path, then you can figure out which market to start working on those strategies in and what your plan needs to look like to get that stuff done. So like, you know, we do real estate wholesaling is one of our strategies and it doesn't really require any money at all to get started. If you just have a phone or legs and you can just walk around and knock (laughs) on people's doors, you're good. But that depends how much hustle or money you have. So I could pause there. Those are just some high-level strategies that I would recommend people either getting pre-approved for or starting to get educated on because those don't require any money. They don't require any bank. You know, They really just require hustle. And then depending how much money you have, you could supplement some of that sweat equity to make your plan. I like that you said that though, because I remember when we first spoke and you're like, oh, it's great if you already have the job that pays well and then use the loans. And I'm like, fuck, like I don't anymore because I left. And so it's like, do I need to now go find another job to just sit on for like a month while I get pre-approved and then purchase the property? I mean, I'm sure that could work, but like you're saying that you can do alternative things for people who maybe either A, don't make that much money in the ways of like, maybe a six-figure job or whatever it is, right? Fancy banking role, or maybe there's something, you know, entrepreneur or freelancer. There are other ways of making it work. So I appreciate you saying that. Totally. Yeah. And you know what I've actually found? And again, everything has pros and cons in life, but I've actually found the people that start with the creative financing or they start with the real estate entrepreneurship go much further than the people who are bound by bank loans because they're required to be more creative and they learn a skill set that's way more scalable than someone who has a W-2 job and they're waiting for their DTI to come back up every time they buy a property. So it's actually, depending on the type of person you are, I actually think if you're a self-starter, it's a huge positive to start real estate investing without being dependent on bank loans. Every big investor at this point now, they're not dependent on bank loans. They're raising money from other people or they're using low money down strategies. So if you get into that world, you can be super successful. It's just less popular because there's a million reasons, you know, like systematic reasons why it's less popular, but not relevant for this. Just you can go very far if you learn about those strategies. Cool. Can you explain really quick what the hell DTI is? Because you keep saying, you know, like, my sorry. dumb ass is You're totally good. No, I, no, 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 uh, okay. I hate when I hate when I do this because I used to hate when other people do it. Debt to income basically is just a ratio where a bank they put all your income in one bucket and then they put all your expenses in another bucket and they divide the two to come up with a number that they use as like a score that if you're over or under, they'll give you a loan. So based on individuals DTI, they can qualify for different purchase price properties. Okay. So it's as almost as simple as that, but for some people, you know, they're not sure if how to calculate it. So there are calculators online or really if you call a bank and explain to them, here's how much I make. And then here's my high level big expenses. 
if you have credit cards or student loans or a house or rent, then they can tell you what your DTI percentages, your debt to income, and then that can help you shop for properties. So it's not as confusing as it seems. If you're nervous about it, just talk to someone. But also, we can talk about this too, Gabby. You know, as an entrepreneur at the beginning, spending a lot of money is just a bad idea. I know that's a generalization, but like, just keep your expenses down. And like, you'll always be better off at the beginning when you're trying to get loans and stuff, you know? So for me, I was very frugal. I lived so far below my means my first five years of entrepreneurship, even though I was making good money, but people would have never known it because I wear the same shirt every day. I don't drive a fancy car. But now the whole trajectory changes if you just compound along the front end. So sorry, a little bit of a rant, but like (laughs) you can talk to a bank, but in general, just, I see people overspending to impress people. And it's just, it's a recipe for disaster financially. It's just, it's horrible. Well, I mean, I think that's also like, it's the corporate mentality to be a good consumer. You like, I remember being in corporate and it was all the women had to have the Louboutins, right? If you had the red bottom heels, you were a bad bitch in the banking industry. I'm serious. Like, and I was like an asset management, which is like not the sexiest place to be. You know, everyone's still wearing the fucking gray pantsuit or whatever, the pencil skirt suit. And you still look like a banker, which let's be honest, is not really that hot, but okay, let's go with it. And you're wearing Louboutins, like weird, like save your fucking money. Like, why do you have to get this like Louis Vuitton bag that everyone fucking has? Everyone has the same fucking bag and it's like $2,500. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Amen. That's all I have to say to that. I got sucked into it too. And then I needed to remove myself from it, but it's part of the corporate culture that keeps people trapped. Ultimately. Exactly. That's literally it. Part of it is, is intentional. Part of it's unintentional, but and, and don't get me wrong, you know, now as I get into the more of the world of marketing, you know, there is something that, you know, when someone pulls up in a nice car, you immediately think they're successful. So there is something to that of, you know, a brand and an image, but you need to be aware of that and then do that systematically as opposed to just getting sucked into buying all this crap that doesn't make you happy or that you don't actually enjoy. That was something that happened to me and I think happens to a lot of people. Yeah. But it's funny too, because once you leave the corporate environment, you realize how much you bear. Like I barely buy things now. Like I have not purchased from Amazon in so long, which sounds like, wow, like, but I just don't buy as much dumb shit. Like, oh, I immediately need this. And like the clothes and the gotta keeping up with this and do that. And the newest makeup thing. And like, I just don't, I barely wear makeup. I don't wear fancy clothes. I wear the same five fucking shirts. Like I just, it doesn't even like, it just becomes so normal to just like not consume. Yeah. It's until you feel it, it's a big problem for people, but I'm, I'm really the same way. You know, like I had the fancy watches, I'm selling them. Like I don't dress fancy. It just, but for some people, they love fashion and they love watch design and it truly makes them happy. Amazing. Double down on it. But for me, I don't care about that stuff. I, I just, it doesn't do anything for me. I like travel. I like playing golf. I like buying back time. Those are where I like to spend money. I don't like to spend money on stuff that like I'm barely going to use. I just, you know, I get regret about it. I don't like it. So totally. Yeah, but that's a whole nother, you can probably keep talking about that. But So like, I want to kind of sitch gears a little bit. So like, you know, I know you do right rentals. You also do Airbnbs, which is something that everyone's like, oh, I want to do that too. Like, sounds so cool, right? Charge extra money, like fancy ass place. So like, what are some of the myths around running Airbnbs? Like the pros and cons, if there are any? Yeah, right now, I would say it's probably like the golden era or maybe the peak for Airbnb, not to say that it's going to fall off, but I think right now with people traveling again, people driving on vacation instead of some people still not flying, 
there's a big push for Airbnb. So, you know, what I would recommend for anyone or, or just like what I think about it is if you have a rental or you're considering, you know, real estate, I think it is a good place to start out and start experimenting with because even our regular rentals, we are converting to furnished rentals. So they're not like what people may imagine as like nightly Airbnb and like a treehouse bungalow. It's just like a nice one or two bedroom in Raleigh that people need to stay in when they come and they want furnished. And that's something we're offering maybe 30 night minimums or 60 night minimums. So that's an option. I think that there are people that are going into it more aggressively. And I don't love going in so aggressive into something with having one exit strategy. People think that, you know, if you're a real estate investor, you grow risk away. I'm actually very risk averse. So for me, I always like to have backup options, you know, how to get out of something if it starts going badly or how we can pivot. But in general, right now, furnished rentals, I am seeing in the areas that I have real estate, they can generate three to four times the profit. And if you have a system or even sometimes a management team or you do it yourself, you can make that extra money. And for a lot of people, that's huge because in real estate, typically rentals would generate maybe two to 400 a door after expenses of net cash flow. But with one Airbnb, that might be more like 800 to 1500. You start accumulating some of those and that is a big difference in people's lives as opposed to a couple hundred dollars that could maybe go away or could get knocked off if there's a big expense. So I think it's interesting. I think some people ask, is it too competitive right now? Is it getting too saturated? It may, but more people are traveling on Airbnb. I think there's a lot of demand for it. But then at the same time, I think there's always in anything room for the best. So if you're going to be a great host, you're going to have great pictures, have a great property. I think there will be room for you and you'll stay around even after inexperienced people jump in. But I do think it'll get more competitive. Like anything, I almost look at it like TikTok. TikTok had a heyday. And you know what? You could post stuff eight months ago that would blow up that now doesn't blow up. But you know what? You adapt. And you know if you're still putting out great products and great content, you'll always stay ahead. But I think right now there's like a golden era for it that the money is better than what it even deserves to be. You know, people are making stupid money on it. You know, it's it's worth, in my opinion, tapping and trying to get into. Yeah. And I love the idea of like the short-term rentals, if you will, because for me personally, like I said before, the idea of locking myself into a one-year lease was always like, oh no, like, cause I love to change on a dime. I like to like, you know, all over, I've been all over the boroughs, all these places, but right. A five-day weekend or extended weekend isn't enough, but like a 30-day or a 60-day in like some hotspot that you're considering working out of, like if you're working from home, you're working remotely, whether you're on W-2 income or not, like gives you the flexibility to check out places before you want to like rent there or buy there or just like, I don't know, you're visiting family. Like it gives so much flexibility and it's furnished. So you don't have to worry about like literally living, like sleeping on cardboard box. Like, Oh my um, God. It's cool. I will never sign another lease again. I decided that a couple months ago. I stay only in extended stay housing when I travel. I don't own any furniture. To me, it just was so much, it was too much of a pain in the ass. I don't like schlepping it. I don't like assembling it. So for me, and I think a lot of other people fall into this category, especially during COVID, you know, they don't want to be locked into things and they want to be plug and play. You know, that's just becoming more and more. So for me, I will never sign another lease. You know, the places that you can stay on Airbnb with extended stay discounts are better anyway. And yeah, it's just, there's so many benefits of it. So 
I think that's an underrated strategy too for people that are looking to get into the investment game to tailor to 30-night minimum stays. It's also easier and it's also less headaches potentially with like day-to-day management. I, when I was saying easier, it's easier with like maybe landlords or you know if you're going to try to do arbitrage, but it's just easier to manage in general as far as like people coming and going and the money is still really good and there's a need for it. Can you explain what Airbnb arbitrage really is? Like what that means, the term? Yes. So Airbnb arbitrage is the process of going to a landlord, renting from that landlord, and then re-renting on Airbnb. So you pay $1,000 a month in rent, you furnish the property, and then you can list it for the month for $3,000. And you get to make the profit in between what you're paying that landlord and what you're receiving in revenue from Airbnb. How does that work though? Because I feel like, okay, so I lived in Manhattan for years, like Brooklyn, Queens, I was all over. If I were to do that, I would get my head chewed off by my landlord. They'd be like, they exclusively in the lease, like said, do not let anyone else rent this. Like we're not doing that. So like, is that just a state-by-state thing or is that a specific contract that you have with the landlord or something? Good question. So some states are more restrictive to things that are nightly rentals. So you, you hear people say in New York City, Airbnb is illegal or Chicago or some places, but extended stay rentals are never going to be illegal. So if you owned one in New York City, you could do 39 minimum and you're technically legal. A lot of people still do the illegal thing anyway. It's I've never heard of anyone getting in trouble, but I'd never advocate for that. Okay, then for the landlord, what you're doing with the landlord is you're signing a different type of lease or the lease has an addendum uh, that says basically you're going to have corporate housing clients or you're going to have clients from a travel business that you're organizing that are staying in the property. You're not going to them and saying, hey, can I run Airbnb in your property? Like anything, the world runs on what's in it for me. So you have to appeal to other people they're not going to just say yes to your scheme without getting anything for it. So offering things like longer lease terms, higher security deposit, maybe some portions of rent up front, maybe some portions of profit split with Airbnb from what you're making or a higher percentage or check-ins or guest screening and sending them whatever they need. Stuff like that to get your foot in the door is important. But yes, the landlord conversation is tricky. People that are better in sales have a better time with it. So I, that's just to answer that. But what I also think people should highly consider, if, you know, Airbnb arbitrage is very, you know, there's a lot of steps to it. It's totally possible. You can make a lot of money doing it, but there are a lot of steps. I think for people that are looking to get in the game, they're not as maybe good at sales or they don't want to jump through the hoops or feel like maybe what they're doing is a little like, harder is to do Airbnb management for other people and charge a percentage. You're getting all the benefits, but you don't have to buy the furniture. You don't have to negotiate landlord leases. You basically just say, I'll optimize your listing. I'll make you more money and I'm going to get a cut for managing it. And I think for a lot of people, that's actually a better strategy than Airbnb arbitrage. Airbnb arbitrage is just sexier. People like the concept, I think, of feeling like they have a property that then they could stay in or that they control or it's theirs. But I think if people are trying to just make money and take ego out of the equation and managing for other people, it might be a better strategy because also then you don't have furniture to worry about. You know, you're just managing and optimizing. And if you build a system and maybe you get some Airbnbs and automation in the mix, it's not really a big time suck for you and you can make good money. So yeah, I like to throw that out there when I talk about arbitrage as well. 
Yeah. I mean, that seems like a really great way for people to get their feet wet without the full commitment. Cause right. It's always scary and like all these things, right. Seriousness to it, especially if they've no background in real estate at all, like at all. But like, how do you do that then? How do you even approach these landlords or do you just find listings in Airbnb for like, maybe cause we're both on Long Island. Like I would find someone maybe in the Hamptons or like wherever it was, like, I don't know, someplace to be like, Hey, like, what do you even do with that? So like anything, it's always the hardest to get your first client, your first customer. But then once you have that, you can leverage them a lot to either their friends or get referrals from cleaners that you work with on the day-to-day or other vendors. But typically what I would recommend for people is starting in Facebook groups of traditional landlords in areas that you think could do well on Airbnb or you've done some research that can do on Airbnb. I think a lot of traditional landlords are curious about Airbnb, but they're a little concerned about doing the work themselves. They don't want to be as on call because rentals, traditional rentals are very passive. You don't have to do much. Once the person is in there, the money just hits your account and things should run very smoothly. So that's where I would start. I would go into Facebook groups. I would go on bigger pockets. I would go to real estate meetups. I would start a podcast about real estate investing to meet all sorts of landlords and all sorts of real estate investors. And then it comes down to how good are you at marketing? and letting the world know that you are starting a management company and that you are willing to manage for other people. And you're going to give the first couple clients a sweet deal because they are going to be early clients. And then from there, you raise your prices gradually as you get your second, third, fifth. And some of these, not some, a lot of these landlords, they'll let you try out one property, but they might have 11 like me. So if you try one with me and you do a great job, I'll give you the rest of the portfolio. So it really does just start with one, but I would start with those groups. I would start DMing people. I would start creating content. I would start a podcast. And from there, you want to build relationships with landlords and you need to go to the places that landlords hang out. Again, bigger pockets, Facebook investment groups, and meetups. And you tell them what you do. They tell you what they do. And then you start facilitating that conversation. And really what a lot of this comes down to is learning about sales and communication. But you know, from there, then you just need to get your first client. But those are the places I would go. Those are the tools that I would use. And then it's just about hustle. If you send 20 to 50 messages a day, and start doing podcasts, there's no doubt that you're going to get a client. It's just some people don't want to do that work. Yeah. I know you mentioned like cleaners and like, I know you leverage a ton of virtual assistants for like all these odd end projects um, to make money. So can you touch on like, how did you even find those people? Like, do you use them for the same tasks? Like, do they have their own network? So for example, if you would use a house cleaner in Raleigh, but maybe you have another property elsewhere, like how would you then go about finding someone who's consistent and legit for all the different properties. Because, right, it's hard to find good work or I should say honest people too. It is very hard. That is the hardest part. What I would say there is if you can have some economies of scale in the same area, that's great. If you can have familiarity with someone who cleans multiple properties or can do more work for you. Because again, back to what spins the world, it's what can you do for me? So they might be a cleaner. Maybe you could use them as a runner. Maybe you could also... I would even recommend having them help you with some social media or other tasks just because you want more of their time. Because if you're just one of many to them, they're going to treat you like that. It's why a lot of times we'll try to give more work to people in projects and kind of scale them up so that we can hopefully scale them to more of a full-time person or someone that's just dedicated to us. How do you find these people? Virtual assistants. I like Upwork. I like Freelancer. And I like Online Jobs PH. The first two are free 
And then the third one is a monthly subscription, but you can just get the monthly subscription when you have a job and cancel it. As far as runners and cleaners and handy people, I like Thumbtack and TaskRabbit. And those are really good for like odd jobs in person. You know, of I need someone to hang a TV or help me assemble a new couch or let someone into a property. They are paid by the hour people that can just do odd jobs. And believe it or not, those are becoming more popular because it's the same reason that the gig economy is blowing up. People, they want to make money when they click the on button on their phone. They don't want to have to make money by being at a desk at a certain time. So it's easier than you think. But again, like back to the property stuff, it's the rule of one. Most people, they talk about all the problems of hiring an employee in a virtual assistant before they've ever hired one. So hire one instead of talking about the 15 things that can go wrong. It's just so funny. We all do it, but it's just because we need an excuse to kind of procrastinate doing the hard thing. And the hard thing is maybe having a conversation with someone or writing a job description or honestly, forget writing it. I give my help my job descriptions in my groups. So the free ones. So just, you know, like, again, whatever you need to do to get going, but that's where I find them. And those are the type of jobs they do. The more important thing, actually, Gabby, is the training. You can find these people, but if they don't have good training or systems, that's where a lot of people go wrong with their first hires or employees. And it's okay. That's part of the learning. But ultimately, the clearer you are with instructions, written and video, we like to use Loom and Slack for, you know, quick questions, the better off that person can be at succeeding, but they can't think for you. They need to have a lot of direction at the beginning. And then from there, they can be given a little bit more like freedom to make decisions and be empowered to kind of problem solve. But at the beginning, that's where we see a lot of people go wrong with virtual assistants is they just expect them to figure out a problem for them that they haven't even been able to figure out. And that's not how it works. Yeah. I've done both. So <laughs> we all do. Already. We all yeah. Do. Yeah. I've also had a fire one. So it's like, oh, yeah. you know, it's just part of the process. Oh yeah. We fired many. And we hire many, you know, it's just part of the process. But, you know, hiring tip in general, and it's sort of trite, but so true. When you find a good one, treat them well, pay them, and like tell them they're doing a great job. And also ask them if they have any other friends. Like we had a cold caller for the wholesaling stuff. She was phenomenal. We asked, do you have any other friends or people like you that can maybe do texting? She found someone that could help us do texting. Also a great person. Great people know other great people. Horrible people know other horrible people. That's kind of <laughs> the way life works. We all like to hang out with people. It's so true though. It's fucking hilarious. It's true. <laughs> we, we hang out with people similar to us. So, you know, it's the same reason that a lot of times in real estate, if you just find one investor or one realtor or one person, they can unlock the cheat codes for you by introducing you to the rest of the important people. But you need to find that person, that thing. And then that can be kind of like a leveraged step to get you where you need to go. But yeah, you get it. It's funny how, you know, people hang out together. Yeah. Yeah. It's just when you say it like that, I'm like, oh my God, it's so true. So one thing that's kind of piquing my interest, right? You have so much shit going on, right? You have the podcast, you have all these different real estate related things, all these investments, you have fucking courses, you have masterminds. And just for me, from my own perspective, doing things by myself, it is so difficult to keep quality of life while building all of this and keeping multiple income streams. So like, how do you fucking do it? Like, how do you still keep your sanity, right? I know you have virtual staff to lean on, but like in the beginning versus now, like has it been still a struggle of like balancing everything and coming up with processes so that yes, you can travel and do the things that you've wanted to do? 
I'm going to even challenge you, Gabby. When I look back, yes, there's all the time saver tips and the productivity hacks. But when I look back at it, one of the biggest things for me was hiring an assistant. It's the hardest hire to make. Again, like everything, the first one of these, it's like, I'm not going to have enough work for them. Or, you know, what if I train them and they leave? All these what ifs. But I'll tell you one thing in speaking to multimillionaires, like decamillionaires, and then a few billionaires that I've talked to, every single one of them has help. They at least have an assistant, if not a team of assistants. And what that empowers them to do and empowered me to do was focus on things, three things, things that I like doing, things that I'm good at doing, and things that make me money. I'm not a details person. If it came down to me filling out a form to do something, I would literally never have anything happen in my life because I just can't do it. I don't know why. I just, if I had to put pen on paper and fill out like an application or something, it doesn't matter what it is. I just don't do it. I hate doing it. But if you told me I had to basically create content or do sales or come up with a system for virtual assistants, I'm all about it. And those are things that make me money and, and I enjoy doing. So for me, getting that knocked out on a small basis was really important and that helped scale everything. And that really improved quality of life because one of my favorite books, Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt, it really helped me understand that concept of do the things that intersect those three and then everything else, stop doing or delegate. And that really helped me preserve quality of life. Now, of course, at the beginning, I was doing all of it. And there's a grind that you need to push through. And there's a trade-off between paying someone either in time, money, or equity for them to return the favor. But what you know, I also found was I was growing an audience and people were reaching out trying to get mentorship or help. And I would give people a chance if they could, we could barter. I'll mentor you if you help me with this thing. You know, that's how I found my first podcast editor. And ultimately, I think that helped me. You know, what I would say if people say, like, what are you good at? What are your, you know, your superpowers, whatever the, the thing is. For me, it's delegating and it's for building systems. I'm obsessed with it. But I think then I also like these little time management games after that of like, I have on my calendar every day after two o'clock, no meetings. Just for quality of life, I don't enjoy evening meetings. I don't enjoy talking to people or whatever. I also, I don't pick up my phone. I don't give out my phone number. I don't want people calling me. I like to be you know, on when I'm on and disconnected when I'm off. Again, all these things are a little easier said than done. But if you make it a study more of time management, systems, process, delegating, you'll be happier and you'll have a bigger business in the long run. But at the beginning, these are all hard things. So what I recommend is focusing on one every 30 or 60 days to try to figure out or achieve. Um, and also focus on businesses that are more scalable and less like hand-to-hand -hand combat. Like if you sell a course, that's film once, make money many. So if you think about it, that's a great way to scale a business. Another thing, Gabby, that you might appreciate is a friend of mine, he was like depressed in his business. He started a startup, scaled it. He was making a lot of money. He's really depressed. He's like, what I realize is you want customers, you don't want clients. Clients require phone calls, customers or people that are buying something, you know, over and over. And it's just an interesting concept that, you know, I've now thought about with our training products or the systems we use for Airbnb. That's really important. So yeah, I got really into it for a while, like that world. But I think if you can kind of like dig into a couple of those concepts, spend some time on them and also throw ego out the window to say, I'm going to hire my first assistant for five hours a week. You know, even if it hurts me a little financially, I'm going to start doing it because my time is valuable. And I need to buy back my time to do things that make money and grow the business. 
Yeah. And also just, I know for a lot of people, myself included, it was so hard for me to delegate tasks. Like it was always like the thing I wanted to hold on to. Like it's my baby. It's my idea. I don't want anyone to touch it. And the sooner that I hired the assistant and the audio editor to do these things, I now know that A, I can rely on the right people when they're the right fit to do things. And I don't have to do it all myself, but also now like I don't have to be the person who does it all. Like it's so great giving shit away. I love giving shit away now. It gets addicting, you know, and it's just back to everything. Doing it at the beginning is really tough, but it's that old expression, tell yourself, you know, say it however you need to to yourself, but done is better than perfect. And for most people, they let the excuse of perfection be their reason that they're not going to do anything in life. You know, I have a friend, he jokes at me all the time, you know, like, I want to do this, but I'm just a perfectionist. I'm like, dude, everyone's a perfectionist in some way. You're just using that as an excuse to not do anything. It's like that old quote, if you're not embarrassed your first product, then you launch too late. Anything, you know, you just need to start and iterate. Your first 20 of anything are going to absolutely blow. You know, I did a daily podcast for a year. (laughs) The first one I keep up, it's absolute dog shit, but it's okay because it's just great to look back at and learn. And then you can't improve something that doesn't exist. That's one of my favorite quotes that how can you improve something that doesn't even exist yet, you know? So it's just like, you can plan, but then when rubber meets the road, you figure it out. And hiring and virtual assistants and delegating is one of those things. Also for any of your audience, I love a tool called Zapier. It really helps us move data around and automate things and follow up. We also use Kajabi. It's a great marketing tool that helps us with email automated sequences and, you know, Do your like courses whatever. live there? Like, is that where you're We're moving all lives? of our courses over there. We have one in Teachable ah. right now, but we're moving everything we do into Kajabi. Email marketing, website, courses, funnels, automations. Kajabi is a sick tool and I'm really excited about the potential with it. We're going to be launching a bunch of mini courses from there. We hold all our lead magnets there. It's cool. So we could talk more about that too another time, but it's, you know, or now, but it's a cool tool. Yeah, I've been, I used it for my mastermind, which I might end up not end up doing with that, but I might do the course thing. But Kajabi is so cool. I mean, there's so many different things. It's a little pricey, but it's like all in one. So it pays off. Yes, it is a premium tool for sure. But there's a you know a lot of ways to recoup the costs. And that is a tool actually that I look at. Like when I see that charge hit my thing every month, I'm like, that's motivation that I need to do more with it. I don't look at that and I'm like frustrated. So we all have little tricks to get ourselves going. That motivates me. I'm like, Ugh, I need another thing, you know, and it's all good. Yeah. Well, so you obviously like sprinkled in a lot of knowledge bombs in here. I have a lot of work to do myself after this call. But one thing I like to leave off with all my guests is like a final parting token is like, if you could give advice to your younger self, what would that be? Uh, I rotate these or I think, you know, it just depends on like the mood I'm in or like the problem that I'm thinking about right now. Ultimately, I do think the best business shortcut is mentors or following people that have done the thing that you want to do. I have never considered myself to be that smart, but I'm good at following a system or designing a system. So for me, even like right now, there's a guy that I really admire the way that he has rolled out all his content education. His name is Ryan Pineda. I'm in his one of his groups. I'm going to pay to play golf with him. I'm going to do what I need to do to get around him. And there's ways that you can find mentors by bringing value. I have a lot of content on that. Or you can pay, but there is some cost to getting around the people that you want to be around. You know, it's either time, money, or energy in a lot of cases to bring that person value so that they'll pour into you. But I found that if you can get around the right people that have made the mistakes and can give you guidance on situational questions, it 
can keep you motivated and it can shorten your timeline to see results, which I think helps people stay motivated. So I would say, I would tell myself, do everything you can to get a mentor, do everything you can to get around a better circle. And from there, things just start to happen. Mm -hmm. Couldn't agree more. So uh, can you let everyone know where they can find you, where they can like see your YouTube, maybe got involved with your mastermind or any of your courses? So it's funny, this could be a whole other thing to talk about, Gabby, but I am, <laughs> I'm just doubling down on YouTube. YouTube is the only thing that if anyone would like to support me or check out my stuff, I answer every YouTube comment. I'm going live more on YouTube. I link my other social medias on YouTube, but YouTube is where I'm putting out the most content now and I'm going to be doing more videos a week. It's just my name, Jonathan Farber. If you search Jonathan Farber, Airbnb or real estate on YouTube, you'll definitely find me. So that would be the number one way if anyone wants to check out you know, any learning. Also, since I am trying to grow the YouTube channel, I do a giveaway pretty much every video. And it's not a giveaway that's like, I'm going to pick five people out of 5,000. Literally, all you need to do on any of my YouTube videos is just comment and subscribe and send me an Instagram DM of the screenshots. And I'll send you either a free Airbnb analysis tool, a free neighborhood analysis tool, a lender comparison guide. I like it to be like, you help me, I'll help you, you know, as opposed to just like, subscribe to my channel. So that's the first thing. And then if anyone wants to get in touch, probably Instagram would be the other best way. It's just J-O-N-J-F-A-R-B. TikTok is awesome. That's how we connected. But TikTok is a weird, weird place. And uh, it's an interesting place. So I don't think it's dead. I think it's definitely declining. And that's why for me, I want to get people to places where they can learn about content in ways that I think will just be more long-term and more evergreen. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so, so much for coming on. And yeah, I look forward to meeting you in real life because we're not too far away from each other. We really need to. We're going <laughs> to yeah. we're gonna definitely make that happen. It's so funny. But thank you for having me. You do a great job. And oh, uh, it's cool to see your progression. And it's going to be so fun to talk, you know, in six months and a year and two years, you know, when you look back at this journey. So it's great that you're documenting it. But yeah, you have what it takes and you're definitely going to be successful in your entrepreneurial Aww. endeavors. No doubt. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Thanks for listening to the Corporate Quitter podcast. Make sure to check out corporatequitter.com for extended content and additional information about our guests. To connect with us, stay up to date on all things Corporate Quitter and to learn more about how you can leave the nine to five, follow our host Gabby on Instagram or TikTok at she likes to gab. 